Father in heaven, Lord, thank you again for this time of study that we have. And Lord, once again, we're asking for the blessing of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to illumine it, and most of all, help us to understand this most important message of the first angel. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first angel's message, part two. And we're going to finish it this evening. So <clears throat> hang on as we get through this, okay? Let's look at verse 7 again of Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, just to refresh our memories, verse 7, the Bible says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit here and I want to look at that point where I left off in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. You see, when we looked at Daniel 12, 4, it said that knowledge will be increased. But what was this knowledge relating to? What was actually sealed in Daniel chapter 12, and verse 4? The whole book of Daniel was not sealed. We looked at this the last time. It was actually the 2300-day prophecy that was sealed. So to a great degree, those that lived towards the end of time, that knowledge of the 2300 days will be unsealed, and only those that fear God will understand it. And this, of course, is relating to what? The beginning of the investigative judgment. So the, those that fear God will understand that concept. But now we're looking at the next step. First, we have to fear God, but next we have to give glory to Him. Now let's go over to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Three. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. In relation to this giving glory, what do we understand here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23? The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. So somehow, opposite to giving glory is sin. So if we're in sin, we cannot give glory to God. Hence, we have to first learn how to fear God. So fearing God is what again? keeping the commandments and also having faith. So if we're giving glory to Him, we cannot be sinning. Hence, we must already have learned how to fear God. So these are steps, they're progressions. So when it says fear God, give glory to Him, we must first learn how to fear God before we can give glory to Him. Now therefore, to give glory means to stop sinning. Now what is the definition of sin? 1 John 3, 4. Transgression, of the law. So, we've learned how to keep the Ten Commandments already. We've stopped sinning. We're starting to give glory to God. Now, so somehow, to a great degree, giving glory to God still relates to keeping the Ten Commandments. Keep that in mind as we move on. Is very closely related to fearing God. Now let's jump over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. What is the word glory here now attached to? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. The Bible says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord. Jesus Christ. 
So the gospel is for the obtaining of the glory of God. So therefore, to a great degree, the everlasting gospel is largely talking about how we can learn to give glory to God. Now, I've already said that, mentioned that. So then what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? If the gospel is to help us attain that glory, what does gospel mean again? Good news. So somehow it's a good news about how we can some way be able to obtain the glory of God. So now the dimensions of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, helping us to understand that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. Not only that, but he's going to help us to also, once again, obtain the glory of God. Now let's go jump over to Exodus 33 and answer this question. What is the glory of God? Exodus chapter 33. And we're starting here in verse 18. Moses is speaking to God. And he's up there in the mountain with God. And he has the audacity to ask God this favor, so to speak. He says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Moses wants to see the glory of God. And we know that no man can see the glory of God and live. So God says, look, I'm going to put my hand in front of you, but yet I'm going to show you my back. I can't show you my face. I'll destroy you if I show you my face. But in verse 19 it says, God answers, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord God before thee, and will be gracious unto whom I'll be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy. So when Moses asked God, show me thy glory, what does God show him? His grace, his mercy, his goodness. And these are what we all consider character traits. So to a great degree, the glory of God really is the character of God. So the gospel, Jesus Christ coming down to die for us on on the cross, is going to help us to obtain the character of God. Let's jump over to Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. Jump over to Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. What do we understand about the law of God in the context of this? Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. The Bible says, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Listing also character traits here. Very similar to what God pronounced there on the mountain to, uh, to Moses. So the law being holy, just, and good, we see in a very large degree the law being the transcript of God's character. And this helps us to connect the link with fear God. Why? Because if we do not obey the Ten Commandments, we're really transgressing the character of God. Henceforth, we cannot give glory to Him. So it's steps of progression, steps of progression, giving glory to God, meaning character of God, really meaning we're shining the character of the law of God. Now, therefore, by keeping the commandments, we are reflecting the character of God. Steps, fear God, give glory to Him. There's very logical steps here. And of course, in the rest of the Revelation 14 and verse 7, there's still going to be a few more progression of steps, okay? So keep that in mind. But we're looking at the first two here. Now, how can we give glory to Him? If we know already what the glory of God is, how can we actually give glory to Him? 
by reflecting his character, of course. Very simple, right? But practically, how can we do that? Let's jump over to John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. How is it possible for us to actually obtain the character of God? It's going to be possible, we know, especially in our last days, because there's this group called 144,000. And friends, whether it is literal or spiritual, may I say that there is at least going to be 144,000 people that will reflect God's character. Now, John chapter 1 and verse 14, what do we know here in relation to the glory of God? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Who is that? Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, being God himself in heaven, came down and took on our flesh. And it says, and he, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, that human being that walked among us for 33 and a half years is the essence of the glory of God. By Jesus Christ coming down to earth, we were, be able, to, we were able to behold his glory. So how are we able to be like God or behold his glory is by beholding Jesus Christ. Now, how do we behold Jesus? Jesus is not literally here in the flesh today amongst us. So how can we behold Jesus? John chapter 5 and verse 39. We've gone to this text many times now. You ought to have memorized it by now. But the Bible here says in John 5, 39, ye search the scriptures for in them ye think is what? Eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Friends, how can we behold Jesus Christ today? Through the Bible. The 144,000 have learned to fear God and give glory to Him. They've learned to study the Bible. They've overcome the problem of the Laodicean church. They've overcome. So friends, to a large degree, you're beginning to see now why our daily devotions are so important. It's not just become a common saying now, but we're beginning to see the importance of our daily spending time with Jesus in the Scriptures. <clears throat> but what happens when you behold something, friends? You're changed. Let's look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is, certainly is nothing new. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it's a law of life. Whether we believe in the Scriptures or not, this is actually going to happen to us. And you know, you can tell a friend and his character by the sort of friends that he mingles around with. Because undoubtedly by the friends that we associate, we become changed into that sort of likeness eventually. So we ought to be careful with the sort of people we mingle around with. By beholding, we become changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us clearly, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. By beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, how do we behold it? Through the Scriptures. If we behold the Bible, we will eventually become like it. And it's not a noticeable change that you yourself will come across. Because, friends, if we realized that we were picking up bad habits, we would never do it. But somehow along the way in the course of our life, 
by the friends that we associate with, by the way we come across certain people and how they speak, how they act, how they eat, how they dress, we automatically slowly become like them. It's a law of life. So what do we ought to behold first thing when we get up? The Bible. Our safeguard in ensuring that we're going to, in actual fact, give glory to God. Now, <clears throat> let's jump over now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Still relating to this issue of giving glory to God. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. The Bible says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? Jesus Christ. Once again, showing us that we need to behold the face of Jesus Christ in order to have the glory of God. But friends, where did light first shine out of darkness? Where? Creation. And... You know, did you notice that light actually shone first before the sun was created? When was the sun actually created? The fourth day. So, what was this light then that was lighting up the world for the first three days? It can't be the sun's rays. God hadn't even created it yet. It had to be the glory of God. So, in reality, the glory of God here is not just his character, but is somehow related to light. Light. And especially creation. Now, what does light represent in the Bible? Psalms 119, verse 105. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do we behold that face of Jesus Christ, which first shone out of darkness? We ought to behold the Word of God. Friends, don't ever underestimate the importance of the Bible. Although we have so many versions of it today, although we ourselves may have more than one Bible in our house, we ought to not underestimate its availability to us. <clears throat> now, what kind of God is He? Well, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. What type of God is He described as? A Creator God. Now, so we're understanding more and more that the importance of creation in relation to the Word of God, being able to reflect His glory. Now come over with me to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. Still on this great topic of glory of God, but here in verse 27 of Colossians chapter 1, we're going a bit deeper into this understanding of how we can give glory to Him. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in order to reflect the character of Jesus Christ, in order to even have the hope of being able to have the glory of God in us, we have to what? Study the Bible. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, <clears throat> to a large degree, this reflects the woman that we saw in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. She was clothed with the sun. She had a garment of light round about her. That light representing what, though? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
So to a large degree, the 144,000, those that are living in this day and age, they need to learn how to put on Jesus Christ, put on His righteousness. And we're going to see this picture come out clearly in a moment. But let's go jump over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. In relation to this light, the Bible says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. How are we going to be able to allow others or guide others to glorifying God? They have to see our good works. They have to see us in relation to fearing God. Because remember, fearing God has two elements. What is it? Faith and also keeping His commandments. But with faith goes what? Works. So if you learn to fear God, you will have works to show and people will see you. This man fears God. Praise the Lord. They will give glory to Him because of what and how you live your life. Now, how do you produce these good works? We've already learned a very practical way in studying the Bible. But that is not enough to get us to produce good works. How do we do it? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, the Bible says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, ah, pardon me, that's verse chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. How do we get these good works? We have to be created unto Christ Jesus, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Friends, these works do not come automatically. They need to be created in us through Jesus Christ. So we see, once again, the creation concept coming out here. But how else can we give glory to Him? How do we get these good works? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, the Bible says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, why ought we to glorify God? Why should we be reflecting these good works? Because we were bought with a price. Friends, God or Jesus Christ himself does not demand it. But if we've taken the first step in learning how to love Jesus Christ with all our love and heart, heart and mind, if we've learned to fear God, the works will automatically come. And it says here, we ought to understand that we are bought with a price. How were we bought with a price? Calvary. It's very interesting how Ellen White tells us that we ought to spend a thoughtful hour each day on the life of Christ, but especially his closing scenes. When is the last time you spent time in looking at the closing scenes, the cross of Jesus Christ? We ought to spend a thoughtful hour each day. And friends, by realizing that and understanding that, it will cause us to glorify God. When we understand the 
price that Jesus Christ paid on the Calvary, how can we sin? If we understand that price that he paid, how can we do this foolishness that we're doing? It all leads back to that understanding of the cross, the gospel, that good news. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ was shed so that we could experience the first angel's message. To a large degree, without the cross of Jesus Christ, we could never have experienced what we are studying now, that first angel's message, the everlasting gospel, which is go to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. <clears throat> what else is the glory of God related to? How else can we let others know about these good works? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, the Bible says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, and certainly showing our outward actions. Friends, it's not enough to profess the name of God. Our lives ought to testify it. And to a greater degree, that is going to be the testing factor whether others will glorify them as well, whether whether they will also glorify God as well. You know, Ellen White tells us that a minister's job, 5% is done on the pulpit. 5%. 95% is living up to the message that he just preached. And it's all no wonder people aren't preaching the straight truth because they're not living it. No wonder there's so much sin in the camp because the leaders themselves are still in their sin. Henceforth, they cannot be preaching it. Or what do you call that? Hypocrite. And you know what? I don't know why, but somehow young people have these huge antennas. They're called hypocrite antennas. They can detect them a mile away. The adults are more, maybe they're a bit dull. I don't know. But somehow young people have this two antennas which can detect these hypocrites and very much, very often, they're put off by this. And so the messages that we preach are now watered down. Why? Because we're not living up to what we're saying. Very important to understand this. Holy living. Now, let's jump over to Psalms 97 verse 6. It gives us a bit more understanding about this word glory. Psalms 97 and verse 6. What is glory here related to? Psalms 97 verse 6, the Bible says, The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. What is glory related to here? Righteousness. So glory is equal to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So definitely when the woman in Revelation 12, 1 is putting on the righteousness, that is learning how to have the glory of Jesus Christ. So we see the concept of righteousness by faith in the first angel's message. But what do we have to have first? Faith. Then comes righteousness. Righteousness by faith. And this is the message that the Laodicean church need to hear and understand, most of all, experience. Righteousness by faith. There you go. All right, during which church will the three angels' message be preached? Do you know? You know, the first and second angels' message was fulfilled in 1844. It had already been fulfilled to a large degree. It's finality and totality of preaching the first and second angels' message. 
But the third angel's message became more relevant after 1844. These three messages became relevant to us after 1844. Now, which church existed after 1844? Laodicea Church. Do you remember the characteristics of this church? They're wretched. They're still in their sin. Miserable, poor, blind, naked. They have no hope. And they've lost hope. Why? Because they keep sinning. So they cannot believe that Jesus Christ will save them from their sins. But this is the message that we have to preach. It's interesting how Jesus Christ left the strongest message for the weakest church. Did you notice that? The Laodicean church have to preach this message. So somehow within the Laodicea church, God is going to have a group of faithful people that will live holy lives. They will abstain from all these worldly things. They will stop sinning. There's going to be people in this Laodicean church. Friends, there's hope for us. Can you see that? God will have a people who will have victory over sin in this church. Now, that is a very hopeful message. I, I really see that because, you know, as Elijah cried out in Mount Carmel, in the caves, when he ran from that woman, Jezebel, he said, Lord, I only, I'm the only one left. And sometimes we're tempted, tempted to say that. But how many people had not bowed their knee yet? Seven, how many? Seven thousand. Sometimes we look around and we're like, Lord, this situation is hopeless to us. But yet there is a group of people out there, friends, that although you be by yourself in a particular church, there are out there, God is preparing His people to give the loud cry, the power of the three angels' message. And whether it is you or me, it's largely dependent upon the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. It, it, it begins with the decision of when you wake up. Are you going to spend time with Jesus Christ or not? <clears throat> now let's look at this. The hour of His judgment has come. Now why should we fear God and give glory to Him? Because we are in the hour of judgment. And that judgment certainly began, we see that with the church of Laodicea, people being judged. But now we see it also, how the first angel's message is relevant to us today, because we're living the hour of judgment. So friends, why ought you to stop sinning? We're in the hour of judgment. Why do you have to start giving, um, start obeying the Ten Commandments? Because we're in the hour of judgment. Why do we start need to reflect in the character of God? We're in the hour of judgment. <clears throat> and what do we know about the judgment? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. We've already read this. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring into judgment every work, whether it be secret or whether it be known, whether it be evil or whether it be good. So everything, friends, is revealed before the eyes of God. The hour of judgment is not to those that are just Christians, but everybody. And since 1844, for the past almost 162 years, we have been in this hour of judgment, friends. If this is not a sobering message, I don't know what is. But we ought to realize the times that we live in. Because Revelation 12 tells us that if there's anybody that knows the times that they're living in, it's not us. It's Satan. He knows that he has but a short time. Now, how are we judged? Jump over with me to James. <clears throat> James chapter 2 and verse 12. 
according to what shall we be judged with? If we know that we're in the hour of judgment, and we ought to be fearing God and giving glory to Him, what are we judged with? Verse 12, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. What is this law of liberty? This law that sets us free? Well, let's go back two verses. Verses 10 and 11. What is this law of liberty referring to? For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. How many? Guilty of all. Verse 11. For he that said, do not commit adultery, and said, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou committed no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So what law is this referring to? None other than the Ten Commandments. Are they still relevant to us today? They sure are. So we're going to be judged by none other than the Ten Commandments themselves, that law of God. I jumped ahead of myself there. Now, let's continue on. The Bible says back in Revelation 14 and verse 7, Fear God and keep His commandments for the hour. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. Now this word hour denotes a certain time period. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 tells us also that there will also be a day in which God will judge man. Let's go there. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. The Bible here says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who him hath him whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So who is the one that does the judging? Jesus Christ, him that was raised from the dead. But here it says that he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. And certainly judgment will take place when the three angels' message is being preached. The hour of his judgment is come. And when was that? Well, according to Daniel 8, chapter, chapter 8 and verse 14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. What date does that bring us up to, friends? 1844, but specifically, really what? October 22, 1844. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Daniel 8, 14 signifying the antitypical day of atonement, which on that day was also known as a day of judgment. If you did not... Um, afflict your soul and do no work, you'd be cut off. It was a day of judgment. It was a literal day of judgment on that day. So, antitypical day of, of atonement began for us in October 22, 1844. And this date, of, above all dates, friends, you ought to remember, this date, above everything else, is most relevant to us. We don't know the date in the future. We don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come again. But we know this date, the beginning of judgment, when, the, when God opened the books of the dead to start judging Adam all the way to our time. Daniel 8.14. Don't know what this is talking about? You need to go back and study Daniel. So, very important. Now let's jump over to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12 gives us an idea also of judgment. It doesn't necessarily say it, But here in verse 12, Jesus is speaking and he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward 
is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So before a reward is given, before this reward that Jesus is going to give to the people, even within a race, there are people that sit in line there and they judge who passed first. So who is the one that receives the first prize, second prize, third prize? So just as Jesus is to give a reward to his people in relation to his second coming, there must needs be a judgment that takes place first. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 also tells us this clearly. We studied this verse previously when we looked at Michael standing. And we realized that Michael is none other than that archangel, Jesus Christ, the leader of a host of the angels. But let's read Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. The Bible says here, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So when Michael stands up, judgment will end. It's the close of probation. That's what Michael standing up signifies. So judgment will end in when time, when Michael stands, just before the time of trouble comes. So friends, when you see the time of trouble coming, largely relating to Revelation chapter 13, the institution of the Sunday law with a death decree, when that has been instituted, you must understand that probation has closed already. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11 says, He that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. So the fate of humanity, including you and me, will have been decided when Michael stands up, when we see the institution of the Sunday law with a death decree. So the hour of his judgment goes from 1844, October 22nd, 1844, all the way to the close of probation. When that time period is, no man knows. Only the Father in heaven knows when that time period is. And Jesus Christ himself. Now, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, Many shall be purified and made white and tried during this time of trouble. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Understand what? The 2300-day prophecy. So they're going to understand the hour of the judgment that we're in. This wise people. So, who are the wise then? Who are these wise that they're referring to? Shall we look at some of those characteristics real quick? Psalms 111. Let us see whether we line up with these characteristics of the wise people that will understand the 2300 days at the end of time. Psalms 111. And verse 10. Who are these wise people? Verse 10, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. So who are those wise men? How do we get wisdom? Those that fear God and keep his commandments. So here's one characteristic of the wise men. Now let's look at another one. Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 3. 
Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 35. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 35. Who else are these wise men? The wise shall inherit what? Glory. But shame shall be the promotion of fools. So we see here they possess God's glory. The wise shall inherit glory. Lastly, let's jump over to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 5. One last characteristic of these wise men. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 5. The Bible says, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both what? Time and judgment. So the wise man shall also understand time and judgment. When we put this all together, friends, this is the first angel's message. So who are the wise men? Those that understand the first angel's message. Are you beginning to see how important the first angel's message is? Prepare us to be one of those wise men. And it's not just about understanding, but it goes beyond that into application. You see, the wise men will not just hear and see and understand these words, but they'll apply what they're learning. And they'll realize that they're in the time of judgment, and so they'll govern their lives according to judgment. The time that we're living in. Excuse me. So the 144,000, which is what Revelation 14 speaks about, these saints in the last days, the 144,000 are the ones that shall understand the 2300-day prophecy. So friends, do you understand the 2300-day prophecy? I mean it to the extent that you know how to explain it. You do not understand anything until you can explain it. Why do I say that? Because the first time I understood 2300 days and tried to explain it, nobody understood except me. It's not enough to just hear it and say, yes, yes, I understand the date, I understand this, I understand that. But you need to come to the point where you're able to explain it to others. Because it says that in Matthew 5, 16, that what? You show forth your good works and cause others to glorify God. And to a great great degree, Matthew 28 tells us to preach the everlasting gospel. Teach the everlasting gospel. So friends, we all at least ought to become teachers of the Word. It may not have to be in history or in science or mathematics, but you need to at least know how to teach the Bible. This is the duty of every Seventh-day Adventist. Every. Not just the pastor. You need to know how to teach it. They are the wise men, the 144,000. And you know what? Who understood the first coming of Jesus Christ? Wise men from the East. So very similar applications, first coming to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Who are those that didn't understand? Those that were in Jerusalem, the so-called Christians. So friends, by being in the remnant church, it certainly does not qualify us to be part of the remnant. I pray that God would have a group of people, especially here, sitting here tonight, since you've taken that effort to come out this evening, to hear this message, to study the book of Revelation, May God give us the power to be part of this number.
Give us the strength to not just understand it, but live it and also preach it, especially without fear. Because we have to cry aloud and show people their transgressions. Why? Not because we hate them, because we love them. We're trying to help them overcome sin. Now, coming down to the last part of the first angel's message, the Bible says here, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Friends, we cannot worship God if we first have not learned to fear him and give glory to him and understand that we're in the time of judgment. But the Laodiceans have jumped all three steps and they've come to worship him but they have not learned to fear Him or give glory to Him. They have not learned to keep His commandments or they have not learned to stop sinning. And this is the exact problem. I mean, friends, maybe you may be wondering why, but you need to go back if you don't understand what I'm talking about. Go back to study the Laodicean church and its condition because that is exactly reflecting what we're doing. We're coming to church week in, week out, but we're coming in with our sins and that is exactly an abomination to Jesus Christ. He does not accept that worship. We're only asked to worship after fear God and give glory to Him, and the hour of judgment has come. Now, the issue in Revelation 13 and Revelation 14 is who you are going to worship at the end of time. Whether it's going to be the Creator, Jesus Christ, who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, or whether it is Satan and his creation, the image to the beast. So, we're seeing here two great competitors. And it's really up to us to decide by how we prepare each day for who we're going to worship, be it the beast and his image, or be it Jesus Christ and God, the Creator. Now jump over with me to Psalms 96 and verse 5. In relation to Creator. Psalms 96 and verse 5. The Bible says, For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So no matter what you worship, if it be outside of God the Father and Jesus Christ himself, you're worshiping an idol. And so hence, we are transgressing the first and second commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not bow down to any graven image or an idol. So therefore, the only way we can identify with the living God is the Creator. We're beginning to see the importance of the creation message. Now, this man, Charles Darwin, I'm sure many of us are familiar with him, he introduced the theory of evolution, trying to destroy the understanding of creation from the Bible. And friends, as good as it sounds, evolution is directly opposite to creation. Evolution is directly opposite to being a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and believe in evolution. That's an oxymoron. You cannot believe in evolution and also think that you're a Christian. Now, the interesting, about, thing, interesting fact about Charles Darwin is that he was born in 1809 and died in 1882. Exactly the same time period where the Advent movement was coming up. And I don't doubt for a fact that Satan brought up this theory I'm not saying that Charles Darwin is Satan, okay? But I know that his theory is leading back to the roots of Satan, trying to destroy the understanding of creation and how God is our creator. 
And as you know, the mark of creation to God is none other than the Sabbath. So evolution has not been, it has been concocted by the devil himself. And it's very interesting that it's the same time period whereas the Advent movement was rising at the same, same time. Now, how do you worship God? Let's look at Psalms and 96 and verse 9. Psalms 96, the same chapter, in verse 9, the Bible says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Once again, telling us that we cannot worship God without first fearing Him. But it says that we ought to worship Him in the what? Beauty of holiness. Now jump over with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. How do we possess the beauty of holiness? If we are to worship Him in the beauty of holiness, how are we to possess this holiness? Romans 6.22. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. How can we make our worship be acceptable in the sight of God? Romans 6.22. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So how do we possess this holiness or the fruit of holiness? We ought to become servants of God. We ought to be free from sin. We ought to learn how to fear God. So friends, our, our worship cannot be acceptable in the sight of God if we are still partaking of sin. It is impossible to still come to worship God week in, week out and still accept, um, to expect that God will accept our worship if we're still in our sin. That's an impossibility, friends impossibility. Exodus 22 verse 12. You know the word holiness is Ezekiel, thank you. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12 and 20. To a large degree, holiness also represents sanctification or to be sanctified. Now, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verses 12 and 20 tells us what sanctifies us. Ezekiel chapter 20 Verse 12, the Bible says, Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. And verse 20, And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. So, moreover on that, the, the symbol of holiness or sanctification is the Sabbath. Very closely re- related to the mark of the Creator. So friends, how do we possess the beauty of holiness? The observance of the Sabbath. And as we know, we looked, Revelation 13, the beast is going to institute a spurious Sabbath, a false Sabbath, which we call the Sunday observance, the Sunday law. Contrary to God's holy people. So opposite to sanctification is also what? Defilement. Now, the 144,000 are not defiled with women. And we saw that that's not literal. It's referring to spiritual fornication. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, relating to also sanctification, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, this is what the Bible points out. In relation to sanctification, the Bible says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. But then it says that ye should abstain from fornication. 
So if you're sanctified, if you're holy, if you're set apart for a holy use, that means you're not partaking of fornication. And in this sense, Revelation chapter 14, pointing to a large degree to spiritual fornication, which is the partaking of union of church and state at the end of time. Union of church and state, which is really observance of the Sunday law at the end of time. Now, where is the first time in the Bible that the battle of worship took place? Do you know? You're going to have to speak up. I can't hear you. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the first people that had a war over worship. They were brothers. And one slew the other because of this acceptance from God. But let's look at 1 John chapter 3. It'll give us a clearer picture about the issues between Cain and Abel. 1 John chapter 3. And friends, take note because this is very relevant to what we're studying. 1 John chapter 3 verses 12 to 13. The Bible says, Not as Cain, who was that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. You know, to a large degree, what is going to happen at the end of the time, the mark of the beast? Why are people actually going to persecute you? Because your works are better than theirs. Outwardly, your works are better than theirs. And they know it. And that's the reason why they're going to slay you. But it says, it calls here Cain, that wicked one. It says Cain, who was of that wicked one. Who is this wicked one referring to? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And verses 7 to 8. Who is this wicked one? Verse 7, the Bible says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. These verses, yes, they have an application to Satan, but it's also referring to the papacy. Friends, this wicked one, called also Cain, is the papacy. So the story of Cain and Abel has much to do with the end of time. And so now you realize when we looked at that story in Revelation 13 about fire coming down, you know that between Revelation 13 and 14, the issue at the last days has a large degree to do with who you're worshiping at the end of time. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping Satan and his image and his beast? Are you receiving the seal of God or receiving the mark of the beast? These issues are very important, but beneath all that, the lowest common denominator, the question you have to answer is whether you're having victory over sin. Because if you're not, if you haven't learned to fear God, your worship will not be accepted in the sight of God. Therefore, you're going to end up at the last days worshipping the beast and his image. Friends, brothers and sisters, where do you stand with this issue of sin tonight? Are you still trying to gain the victory? If you are, that's all right. There is still time for you. 
tonight? Where do you stand with God tonight? Is still sin still besetting your ways? I pray that God will help us to understand this message, but help us to go deeper than that. I pray that he'll help us to experience that first angel's message tonight. Because without this experience, studying the second and third angel's message is useless. You cannot understand it to its full entirety and expect your name to be written in the book of life at the end of time if you're not experiencing the first angel's message. And so as we pray this evening, I pray that you'd pray along with me in your hearts that God would give each of us the experience of the first angel's message this evening. Why don't we kneel for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we count it a privilege to call you Father. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, so unworthy as we were, Lord. But Lord, with your great love, you've shown us that you want us back in heaven with you. You've left the rest of the decision up to us. You've left the part to play, Lord, in our hands now. And whether or not we want to claim that seat in heaven that you've already reserved there for us, it's largely up to the decisions that we make this evening and also into this week. Father, I pray that you'd help us to watch our lives in a very close way, investigate it, inspect it. And Lord, help us to see ourselves in a clearer light. Father, we are wretched. We are miserable poor and blind and naked. Help us to put on that righteousness of Jesus Christ. Give us that faith that is tried with a fire and give us the writings of the prophets that we may see, Lord. Most of all, give us a real experience with Jesus Christ today. I pray, Lord, if there's any of us here this evening that are still struggling with sin, that you'd give us victory through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Lord, we've been struggling with sin too long. We want to go home. Help us to do all that we can do this evening to hasten your coming is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.